opportunity this morning on the morning show here on WGTD to talk with Oliver Hayward, assistant professor of history at UW Parkside, my history professor more years ago than I think either of us wants to count. Correct. And uh, <laughs> uh, we, we want to talk, we've been wanting to talk with Professor Hayward for a while, and uh, events kept getting in our way, important events. We're talking primarily about the elections in Russia, uh, just completed the presidential elections. So we want to talk about those elections, about some of the, uh, what the upshot will be of, uh, of Boris Yeltsin's re-election. We also want to hear about Professor Hayward's trip earlier this year to Russia, and if we have time, and I think we will, we'll try to make sure we have some time, talk about a course that he's teaching this uh, summer in espionage. So this should be an interesting and wide-ranging conversation on our morning show today with Professor Oliver Hayward from UW Parkside. Boris Yeltsin has won re-election uh, as president of Russia. And this was, uh, regardless of who had won, this was, this was a landmark. This was, am I not correct, the first time that the Russian people had freely chosen from among competing candidates to head their uh, their country? Technically, I suppose, the second time, but it's a landmark nevertheless because it continued a process that people were worried whether it would, in fact, continue. Okay. So it's very important. Now, you were over in, in Russia, not to get ahead of ourselves, back in March. March. So were you starting Correct. to see any signs of a campaign back then? Yes, very much so. At that time, it was the campaign for the primary vote, the first round rather than this round, but it was very much in evidence, and there was a good deal of... Uh, evidence of posters up in various places and a certain amount of even electioneering, for example, on radio stations and things of that sort. Hmm. Do the Russians have the hang of this uh, this campaigning thing? Is it uh, an American-type campaign? Yes, although I noticed today in the New York Times a piece about three consultants from the Pete Wilson campaign who went over to help <laughs> Mr. Yeltsin for the final round. They so I guess stood, stayed home. I yeah, guess. well, they're, they're learning, I think, from the best of all. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Yeltsin, as we mentioned, won one re-election, and rather handily, as it turned out, in the in the runoff election. Somewhat surprisingly larger margin than most people predicted, yes. Okay. What can you tell us about uh, the man who came in, in uh, second, Gennady Zhuganov? Zhuganov was head of the Communist Party, as it's currently constituted, a rather different party than the old-fashioned Communist Party that ran the country as a monolith. Um, in many regards, he seemed like a kind of middle-of-the-road politician, considering his communist label. Mm -hmm. uh, I think many of the criticisms of Zhuganov had more to do with whether he really had the ability to run the country than his ideology, and that did, in fact, somewhat concern me as well. He seemed rather unimaginative as far as policy is mm. concerned, and uh, there are enormous problems facing Russia today, and I'm not sure Zhuganov had a real handle on them. I'm not quite convinced Yeltsin does either, but Zhuganov, I don't think, was a really viable alternative. Were Zhuganov and his supporters trying to put the genie back in the bottle in any sense? The not significantly so, other than the sense of uh, slowing down the process of privatization and perhaps in some areas pushing it back a bit, but I think it was more a matter of degree than a qualitative change that they had in mind. We kept hearing that the the kingmaker, if you will, and I'm probably overdrawing that in, in this election, was uh, retired General Lebet, who finished third in the, in the primary uh, uh, election. What was his role, and what is his role going to be? What his role is going to be is a very good question, which I feel quite inadequate to answer, but uh, his role in the first round was to provide a viable alternative to both Zhuganov and Yeltsin, and he came in a rather strong third, which I think was uh, actually anticipatable if one had looked at the total picture. 
But he is not really a politician, per se. He's somewhat um, uh, a little too forceful, perhaps, and maybe doesn't make quite the right kind of statements to win elections and so forth. So I think that his role is a kind of difficult one to assess at the moment because he has a strong following among people who are very nationalistic but don't quite find Zhirinovsky uh, somebody they can swallow. Uh, he has some willingness to go back to the old days in terms of not quite so much of a privatization program. He's very strongly anti-corruption, which is one of the roles he is presumably fulfilling now. And uh, I think his weakness may be that he doesn't really understand economic matters very well, and this is something that clearly is desperately needed in the Russian leadership today. You mentioned Zhirinovsky, the the right-wing leader, Vladimir Zhirinovsky. Was he a candidate for president? He was a candidate, but not a particularly formidable one. And mm -hmm. his uh, star seems to have very definitely peaked some time ago. And rather quickly. Is, is it that nationalism uh, doesn't have... No, on the contrary. Know? It's not really a reflection of the degree of nationalistic feeling in Russia at all. It's that he was just sort of a buffoon. His <laughs> antics as a candidate and in general in the legislature where he is a member of parliament uh, tended to border on almost criminal in some cases. He hit a woman at one time in the parliament and so forth. And his uh, observations generally took on a kind of comic opera nature rather than serious commentary on the situation in Russia. And I think many Russians realize the situation is terribly serious, and Zhirinovsky is not the approach they're particularly attracted to. Boris Yeltsin was the winner. He has won a second uh, four-year term as Russia's uh, president. What's the feeling about Yeltsin uh, on, on two levels, among the people, first of all? Uh, is he that popular? Are they that enamored with his policies and with the way things are going? I would say no to both of those mm. questions. Um, his support among the people, given any kind of viable alternative, I think would be very low. But he managed to put the campaign in terms of me against the communists, and you don't want to go back to the bad old days, and the people bought into this in a way. I think maybe that was a little bit disingenuous. But it was uh, Yeltsin being able to frame the election contest in a way that really benefited him a great deal. Mm. How about Yeltsin's ability to lead, uh, both politically and uh, just his health, uh, his, the state of his health? Yeah, well, you put your finger on a very major problem in my view, but it was not a major problem in the election right. because Yeltsin basically controlled the media, with very few exceptions, and was able to keep the health issue off the front pages, off the airways. So many Russians apparently were not really voting on that basis. Uh, his health can't possibly be a mystery over there. The heart attacks a couple of years ago were reported, and there's been serious concern then in some quarters about his current health. But he was able to avoid making that any kind of a campaign issue, and I think that benefited him a great deal. We heard that several times about uh, Yeltsin's uh, uh, control of the media and the media's overwhelming support for, uh, for Yeltsin. What is the attraction? What does he have? Is, is it that he has political power over the media, or that uh, the media is very much pro uh, pro private development? There's some of the latter fact operating, surely, but the major factor is the media would like to continue to be media. And if they oppose <laughs> Mr. Yeltsin, <clears throat> it's quite conceivable they would cease to have access to newsprint if they're a newspaper. And Yeltsin has pulled this in the past, where he simply raised the price of newsprint to the newspapers that were against him, and they basically had to kind of give in. 
and he controls the TV and radio media pretty substantially through just the regular government regulatory agencies. So that's really a question of survival for many of them. How would you characterize Yeltsin's relationship with, with the West? Yeltsin, I think, realizes the West is useful to him, and therefore he has a pretty good working relationship, I think, with President Clinton and with most of the other major leaders in the West. I think in the West there's a growing wariness about Yeltsin in many respects, including what I was just saying about really abusing the media, in my opinion. But I think as of now, he's actually done a good job of keeping Western leaders pretty much in his corner. Uh, he's again waived the communist threat to them as part of the way he's gotten their support. And I don't see that really changing too much in the near future, because he does represent some degree of stability in Russia, which is something the rest of the world obviously has to be very concerned about. If Yeltsin dies or is incapacitated, <clears throat> is there a succession in place? Well, him? there is not a vice president, because in 93, when there was a sort of coup against Yeltsin, uh, he abolished the position. <laughs> because one of the people involved in the queue was, I believe, the Vice President uh, Rutskoy. And to my knowledge, no subsequent provision has been made for a Vice President. And I believe just after the election, Lebed <coughs> suggested that he would be a good person to put in that position, and Cherno Mirden and others said no way, because they're rather concerned about Lebed's influence over Yeltsin anyway. So I believe the answer to that right now is no, there is not a clear-cut succession. That's scary. Yes, it in, is scary. In a, in a situation that's un, as unsettled as Russia is today. And I, I, in a way, am very sorry Yeltsin ran, quite frankly, because well, I think a better role he could have fulfilled was to establish a viable successor, knowing that his health was bad anyway, and push that person as a candidate in these elections and pave the way for a more orderly succession and a, a longer-term administration in the future. I think what he did was sort of good for his ego, but I'm not sure it was good for Russia. Were these elections run on uh, on a party basis, or, or were they, they nonpartisan? This last election was strictly one against one, okay. two candidates for president. In many European systems, you have a regular party-type election, and at the same time, a vote for the president of the country, or mm -hmm. whatever the title may be. And Russia has chosen to adopt that format. Okay. Theoretically, this was not a party matter. Uh, Zhiganov's Association of the Communists, of course, was well known, and he made no effort to conceal it. Uh, Yeltsin has a party, and there's several parties, in fact, that support the government, but he ran really kind of above party rather than in any way closely connected to a party. Were there parliamentary elections going on at the same time? Does that tell us anything? The parliamentary elections were held a number of months ago, and oh, okay. so they're already in place. And the communists hold the largest single block in parliament, but it's not a clear majority. So Yeltsin presumably can work out coalitions with which he can work in dealing with parliament. I was looking at a couple back issues of, of Newsweek, uh, doing some reading about the, about the election. And um, the issue of anti-Semitism came up uh, largely in, in connection with, uh, with Mr. Zuganov. Uh, is anti-Semitism, was it an issue? Was it, a, a, frankly, an issue in this campaign? I think it's a hidden issue in any Russian political affair, whatever its nature may be. But Zhirinovsky, I think, was the one who tended to make that a particularly vocal issue. And I think one of the reasons that he sort of faded from the scene is that for most Russians, the anti-Semitism is a subtle rather than an overt issue. But there's no question that it is present. How about religion in general? Do the churches play a role at all in uh, the Orthodox Church, play a role at all in, uh, in the elections? 
The Orthodox Church in this particular election was solidly in uh, Yeltsin's camp, and Yeltsin consciously courted the church's support, even though I believe the Constitution prohibits the church's involvement in political matters, but Yeltsin ignored the Constitution in many ways for this election. <laughs> I think probably for many people in Russia, in view of the record of the communists historically, it does make sense to support somebody who's running against a communist in any event. So we have a man who's who's very ill, sitting on top of a a, a, a dangerous situation in Russia, and I, I hope I'm not overdrawing that. How sanguine are you about the, the future of, of Russia? I'm sanguine in a sort of general way because I've been repeatedly impressed with the ability of the people of Russia to somehow survive one potential catastrophe after, catastrophe after another, I think there are some very serious problems immediately on the horizon, but they have so far shown an ability to do whatever it takes to uh, cope with those situations. What kind of role did uh, the fighting in Chechnya have in the, uh, in the campaign? I think that uh, Yeltsin played that card very skillfully. He managed to get the fighting toned down just in time for both elections, really, the preliminary as well as this final one. Um, I think probably there is a certain degree of interest in getting the things settled anyway, so he didn't have to work too hard to accomplish this. And therefore, I think it came, became pretty much a non-issue as far as the election itself was concerned. We're talking today with uh, Oliver Hayward, assistant professor of history at the <coughs> University of Wisconsin Parkside, talking a bit about the Russian presidential elections uh, just passed uh, a week or so ago. We want to hear about your trip. Uh, you went to Russia. And uh, was it to Prague this year as well? Budapest? No, Budapest. Budapest. Yes. Okay. Uh, that was back in March? March, yes. The okay. middle two weeks of March, okay. essentially. How long had it been since you had been over there? I am going pretty much every March now, so it was just about a year. Okay. What was it like this time? We had a very good time, and it was very interesting in many ways. Uh, Moscow was our first city, and Moscow is, of course, the political and every other kind of capital of the country. Mm -hmm. It's very proud of that role. It tends to be basically a pretty healthy city economically. It has a very effective city administration, incidentally. That's part of why it remains in such good shape. There was not much evidence of the crime problem, which one reads about a great deal in the West, in Moscow especially. There wasn't a lot of evidence of it. So it was, generally speaking, a kind of fairly optimistic, upbeat picture. The people I talked to in Moscow, and I have a number of friends there from previous visits, were guardedly upbeat about the future, though they still face uh, some serious problems like inflation, for example, and they're concerned about the crime problem, certainly. But overall, the, the stop in Moscow was excellent, and we we thoroughly enjoyed and were pretty impressed with what we saw. What's the weather like in Moscow in March? As I tell the people that go with me, it's very similar to Wisconsin, so you're not missing a thing, because <laughs> in Wisconsin in March, I don't really much care whether I'm here or not. And over in Moscow, it tends to be about the same temperature, possibly a tad cooler because it's kind of direct exposure to the Arctic winds. Mm. But otherwise, it's pretty good, and there's quite a bit of sun usually. St. Petersburg, the next city, tends to hover right around freezing anyway because it's on the Gulf of Finland, and at this time of year, the Gulf provides some moderating influence on the temperature. Mm. St. Petersburg has sort of uh, declined a bit, I think, because the money simply isn't there to maintain those beautiful palaces, and for that matter, ordinary routine street maintenance is not being taken care of very well. So in some ways, you may feel 
uh, or see evidence of the decline of the Russian economy more there than you do in Moscow. It, too, has, however, a pretty good city administration, and there's been times when uh, St. Petersburg has actually been prospering better than Moscow as a result. But both of the two major cities are in the hands of pretty good leaders right now, and that helps a lot in this case. I understand Moscow's mayor is one of those, and I, I, his name escapes me right now, but I understand he's one of those who's been rumored to be a possible successor uh, or perhaps in the, in the chain of succession somewhere should something happen to Yeltsin. Well, I think both mayors have been mentioned in that regard in the past, but the problem is I think that the uh, the focus of their support is almost entirely in that city. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I suspect the next leader is not going to be a former mayor. Uh, there are other people that are sometimes suggested that I think have a more likelihood of being in that spot sometime in the future. Let's talk a little bit about some of the nuts and bolts about uh, spending a few days in Moscow. What are the hotels like? The hotels have improved somewhat since the bad old days, and in particular, a number of hotels have been built for visiting businessmen, as well as other types of folks that are helping out with the running of the country. And those hotels are very much on a par with Western hotels. The better tourist hotels have been kept up pretty well. I think some of the less good tourist hotels to begin with are even more or less good than they were before, mm. but we tend to try to avoid those. And uh, transportation is still very good. Uh, the whole public transportation system in the major cities of Russia has always been outstanding, and that continues to be the case. I was distressed to see a report a couple of weeks ago of a uh, bomb going off in the Moscow metro because they're very proud of their metro, and traditionally it has not ever been involved in political problems and demonstrations and so forth. But I trust this was just one case and will not probably be repeated. How's the food? Well, opinions vary on the food in Russia in general. I happen to like the food in, in many kinds of mm -hmm. dishes. Uh, but for some of my students, it was more a matter of surviving rather than <laughs> something that they thoroughly enjoyed. But uh, the quantity was good this time, and also there was quite a bit of variety available. So that does suggest evidently that vegetables and fruit and so forth are being produced in the country, at least they're getting access to them. There was no evidence of serious shortages as far as food's concerned. Okay. How about uh, other consumer goods? Uh, other consumer goods remain in short supply or very, very pricey, so that the ordinary Russian citizen is probably going to be hard-pressed to add to his or her collection of consumer goods. But uh, as far as what's needed to get by, generally speaking, it seems to be there. How big a group did you have this time? I had a very small group. It was only about 10 people. Oh. And as a result, we got to go into places that ordinarily probably tourist groups wouldn't go because there'd be too many of us. So it was a particularly enjoyable group to travel with, and they were, they were all good travelers. They were ready for adventure and always put up with any little challenges that might come along. So it was a very good group. If I recall, from, from times we talked uh, in the past during the communist era, you would... When you went over there, you'd have a, a guide who was provided to you, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Is it still like that? Yes, we had an excellent guide this time. And she was very interesting because she was obviously very proud of her country and her city without being propagandistic about it. And uh, she therefore kind of reflected a sort of upbeat atmosphere and, and the way in which the city seemed to be sort of getting its act together. And she was very knowledgeable, and in one trip, we had a bus trip outside the city for a very nice excursion. She, on her own, this was not something ordinarily guides would be involved in, it brought along a set of 
basically a portfolio of old portraits of Russia, paintings, drawings, and what have you, sat in the front seat and turned around to us and gave a sort of historical survey of the city of Moscow from its origins until very recently. And it was a kind of nice touch in terms of letting us know just how important the city was to her. What sorts of places did you go? What did you see? <clears throat> well, we visit the usual quota of art galleries and uh, a number of churches, which are always very interesting now because more and more of them are actually functioning churches as opposed to being museums, effectively, in the old days. So that was special. We typically have a meeting with somebody from the media, like the editorial board of a newspaper or a magazine, something of that sort, and we get to ask questions and have what we think are pretty frank discussions about what's going on. So that's a high point. Mm. We always go to a school or two, and the schools are very interesting. And on this trip, we had one particularly poignant visit to a hospital. And the hospital was for children of dysfunctional families, which is a category one wouldn't have probably encountered at all just a few years ago. Uh, it was run by a very dedicated staff, terribly underpaid, which is fairly common among professionals in Russia now, that they just are not getting paid very decently. In fact, the head of the hospital told us that the way that she dealt with this very low wage scale was to work double shifts because that way she didn't have time to spend money anyway, and as a result, the low pay didn't much matter. But one could see that their resources are really being strained in this hospital, and I suspect in others as well. And yet one also sees that they're getting very good care, and there's a great deal of love and concern among the staff, and the children seem to be responding to it as well. There was a, a syndicated column that was in the Kenosha News about a week or so ago, about the time of the... Uh, election for president. I don't know if you saw it, and I didn't clip it, unfortunately. But it was about the influence of superstition and the belief in the supernatural. Uh, all the way up to the presidential election, apparently some of the candidates had their own astrologers and, and those sorts of things. And we hear about that, about uh, the, that the Russians were doing experiments on uh, uh, telepathy and, mm -hmm. and psychokinesis uh, back during the Cold War. Is there evidence of that? Do you see that? day-to-day -day in any fashion when you're there? I suspect there's more of it than we would ordinarily be able to mm -hmm. see because I would imagine it's the sort of thing people don't talk about unless they feel they really know mm -hmm. you pretty well. I have read some of the same articles or even a couple of books on the subject, however, and you're quite right. As a whole, the people of Russia seem to have a real interest in this area, and I would hypothesize that historically part of the reason for it is the conditions were so terrible that one looked for sort of uh, outlets for one's hopes that maybe offered some sort of prospect for improvement in the future, and the supernatural might fall in that category. So it was almost like an escape Ooh. for many Russians at a time when they had plenty they would want to escape from. I think, again, I recall uh, you telling me stories of, of trips to <clears throat> Russia in the old days under the old regime where security was very tight. You could tell, again, you know, correct me if I'm wrong or amplify on, on these, these points, that, that you were uh, sometimes followed, monitored. Uh, is there still that sort of feeling, or is it all changed? No, I think that that has undergone a marked change from the past, and indeed there are a few times one might wish that the security <laughs> remained as good as before, uh, but they're in kind of minor ways. For example, there's a good deal more begging going on now in okay. major cities, for example, Moscow and St. Petersburg. In the past, security types would have kept that activity down to a minimum. Now it is more in evidence and sometimes gets a little bit uh, to be a, an unpleasant experience. 
We didn't have any of that this time, but I think uh, a year ago there was more of that sort of thing going on. Overall, one doesn't see very much evidence of tight security uh, in the way that you had before 1989 or so. <coughs> Something else, that it's, it's a phenomenon that I've happened to notice over the last year. The Romanoffs are very hot over here. I think Discovery Channel and A&E and PBS have all done major <coughs> documentaries on the Romanoffs. Is it is that happening in Russia as well? Yes, there is considerable evidence of a an improvement in their position in the public's perception. Uh, one of the ways one can see this is there is a substantial part of the Romanov dynasty buried of those that ruled in Russia mm -hmm. in the Peter and Paul Fortress Cathedral in St. Petersburg. And uh, when one visits those, basically these are giant tombs, one sees now uh, flowers on top of the... Uh, coffins, essentially, and other demonstrations of affection for them. There always was this sort of display for Peter the Great, because he holds sort of a special place in the hearts of Russians because of his role in opening Russia to the West and so forth. But now, other members of the Romanov family as well seem to have enjoyed a real renaissance, and there's currently a very lively interest in whether the last royal family may end up being buried in uh, St. Isaac's or possibly in Peter and Paul Fortress Cathedral and issues of this sort. So it's still very much something that's talked about and written about in the press today. Tell us a little bit about St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg is my favorite Russian city, actually. Um, it has a marvelous 18th century, it's sort of an 18th century Italian aspect about it because many of the architects who designed the buildings of St. Petersburg were brought in from Italy by Catherine the Great in particular, and to some degree other 18th century Russian rulers. Um, and it's also been very careful to maintain those buildings and to keep the center of the city largely free of skyscrapers and other evidence of modern development. Uh, and I think the people of St. Petersburg are very proud of this, so that they tend to think historically and they tend to want you to be sort of immersed in the culture of uh, 18th century Russia. And as far as I'm concerned, it works. It's just a lovely city. Hmm. Uh, obviously, you, you've been there before. On, you take that, you go to St. Petersburg pretty much every time you yes, go to yes, Russia. Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. okay. And oh. I, we stay with a family now in St. Petersburg. Each time I, we go in pairs, and oh. each two of our people stay in a house or apartment or something, that sort, which I really like because people learn what it's like to actually live in a Russian city. But in St. Petersburg, the hosts love to talk about art and literature and various aspects of Russian culture in a way that you don't always see in any other city you might visit anywhere in the world. Are, are the Russian people uh, amiable toward Americans? They like mm -hmm. Americans? Very much so. I think this has always been true. It did mm -hmm. not differ in the really? 1980s either. I was always impressed with how they seem to sort of draw a line between our government and the people, as I think I did the other way around. And as a result, we felt nothing but warmth and hospitality from virtually every Russian with whom we came into any kind of contact. Okay. And most of them speak English, I understand? A good deal of the urban population speaks English because they had to take a second language in the university and typically more took English than any other language, particularly after World War II. Before World War II, more people took German, but that changed, as you might imagine, <laughs> after 1941. So it isn't difficult at all to find people who speak um, English or, in some cases, other foreign languages. I had a young man with me this time who spoke very fluent French, and he had a field day because he got to try out his French on all kinds <laughs> of Russians. What's your impression of Russian education? 
Special education, I think, is excellent. Its weakness traditionally, I think, has been in the area of encouraging freedom of individual thought because that wasn't the way the system was set up to operate in the old days. But they are making that transition rather well, and I think teachers, as you would understand, are enjoying this change. Uh, it gives them a chance to get their students uh, involved in the learning process in a much more direct fashion. Always physically, they did a great job of providing schools and facilities and so forth, considering the limitations of the national wealth. That's still a problem today, the limitations. So there's certainly ways in which their school system could be greatly improved by a massive infusion of funds. But overall, I think the teachers are extremely dedicated. The students take their education very seriously. They go to school for a longer school year than we do here. And uh, I think to some degree they clearly regard this as a regular full-time part of their life. Are computers much in evidence, uh, either in schools or in business? Until about three or four years ago, my answer would have been unequivocally no. Mm. But in the last few years, you can see quite a bit of computer uh, technology now being made available in schools and much more so in business, uh, much more so at the university level which is another institution we often visit over there. But even at the primary school level now, there are beginning to be uh, little computer classes with some computers mm. available for that purpose. They look to me to be pretty old computers, but that would be true in many primary, secondary schools in this country as well, I think. Sure. Do you see signs of American and, and other non-Russian investment of business activity in Russia? Yes. Um, the first way I see it is typically when we go over there, <clears throat> the planes going into the country are always carrying businessmen from Western countries that talk about their strategy and what they're planning to do when mm -hmm. they get there. So you can see that it's happening even before you actually set foot in the country. Now there are a lot of projects going on which have joint funding and uh, joint ownership actually in many cases so that this is something that they're quite proud of because the signs are up that indicate this is a joint French-Russian or American-Russian uh, enterprise, whatever it may happen to be. Did you see any McDonald's? Yes. Um, uh, frankly, I avoid them, but there are uh, now a number of McDonald's in Moscow, and uh, some other Russian cities have at least one or two, but I think there's uh, maybe close to a dozen in Moscow. Really? Yeah. Tell us a bit about Budapest. <clears throat> Budapest was, this was my first visit there, and I was thoroughly impressed. I had an absolutely marvelous time. It's a wonderful old city. It, too, like St. Petersburg, I think is very conscious of its history and of its culture and does its best to sort of introduce you to it and make you like it as well. It is easy to get around in. There's a good public transportation system, even though uh, it is divided basically into Buddha and Pest each on each side of the Danube River, and the Danube River is a formidable barrier between the two parts. But you can get back and forth very easily, and the historical sites are, are just a marvel to behold. And then we went up uh, to the northern part of the Danube River as it makes its turn to the west and had a chance to see the Hungarian countryside and visit some old churches and some other aspects of uh, history in Hungary. And that, too, was a very pleasant part of the trip. What's the economic situation in Hungary? As I understand it, Hungary was about the first East European country to seriously look into privatization, did so before Russia, certainly, and mm. did so before really any of the other East European countries. And they ran into some problems because they had a lot of learning to do, being the first ones to try it. 
And for a while, I think in the late 80s, Hungary's economy actually went into a bit of a slump, but it is now recovering. The numerical data suggests this, and there is a lot of prosperity evident in Hungary, even though it is still a somewhat uh, worn city because it's been through some very tough times over history, including in World War II. Is there an awareness of the 1956 uh, uprising in, in Hungary? Any monuments, anything like that? Yes, there are some monuments, and there are some references to geographical locations where this or that happened at the time of the 56 uprising. So it is uh, actually quite very much in evidence today. We're talking with Professor Oliver Hayward, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin Parkside, uh, hearing a bit about uh, his trip of earlier this year with uh, a student group to Moscow, St. Petersburg, and Budapest. Are you going back this coming spring? Yes, I expect to be taking another probably two-week trip to Moscow, probably St. Petersburg, and then some East European city. I may go back to Budapest. That was really a terrific really? trip, and there's still a lot of things I'd like to see there. Now, you went to Warsaw a year before this. Warsaw and Prague. And Prague. Mm -hmm. Okay, how would you sort those Budapest, Warsaw, Prague, how would you sort those out? Budapest and Prague share that they are both beautiful cities, a lot of wonderful 17th, 18th century architecture. But Prague has tended to become a very expensive city, and therefore I in some ways prefer to go to a place where we can afford to do more things. Sure. Warsaw may not be quite as spectacular as the other two, partly because Warsaw took a terrible beating in World War II. It was devastated by both the Germans going mm -hmm. out and the Russians coming in. So in Warsaw, there's maybe a little bit less to see of a real historical nature, which is what my profession is, of right. course. But Warsaw is uh, a very healthy city today. I was quite impressed a year ago with the degree to which it has recovered from a terrific uh, difficulty in the past, both the World War II and then the communist period mm -hmm. when it was the economy was in pretty bad shape. Let's talk about the, the course you're teaching this summer, Espionage. You've offered this course before. Yes, I, I have. Recall. It came out of uh, noticing as I was teaching my Western Civ courses and certain other courses that an increasing amount of history can now be explained in part by various breakthroughs in the area of intelligence gathering, espionage, and so forth. And virtually no textbooks really deal with that part of it. This is partly because some of the most interesting espionage issues weren't even mentioned in books until about 1974 when the first indications, for example, of World War II's breakthroughs in that area, the Ultra Enigma mm -hmm. accomplishments, for example, were mentioned. Before that time, it was illegal to even write or talk about them in, in the West. So I thought maybe it would be useful to have a course in which one explored the ways in which espionage and breakthroughs in intelligence gathering and code making and code breaking had played a role in the way in which certain historical events unfolded. And as I read in this area, I discovered this was even a more lively topic than I thought. There were references to spying, for example, in the Bible and in medieval times, and uh, Queen Elizabeth I of England had a super spy named Walsingham who was instrumental in the defeat of the Spanish Armada by the way in which he gathered information. And you can point to virtually any period in history. I'm, I focus mostly on the West uh, just because it's the area I know sure. better and find ways in which this very strongly affected the course of history. So this is my course. Now, my wife calls it my spy course. <laughs> I point out to her that it's not a how-to-do-it course. It is a course in the historical development of espionage and its impact. But uh, uh, students that have taken it, I think, have found it to be a kind of nice change of pace. Hmm. You must have had to 
pull together a lot of disparate sources because, as yes. you mentioned, there's there was no single book on espionage. No, but recently a fairly good book on 20th really? century espionage has come out, which I now use for the, that part of the course, and I tend to lecture primarily on the earlier periods where there's less available in print. Sure. What do you say about the CIA? What do we I know say, about the CIA? I don't say much about the CIA, partly because my focus of uh, teaching is Western civilization outside America, since we have several good American historians at Parkside. Okay. So, by and large, the CIA comes into my course only peripherally in connection with uh, mostly U.S.-Russian relations after World War II. Okay. And the, a lot of that material still is not available, so I tend to focus on subjects where I have some pretty concrete uh, evidence to go on. Okay. Well, if we're talking about international spying, the British, the Russians, and the Israelis <coughs> all come to mind. Mm -hmm. Do you talk about each of those? Yes, along with the French, who are no slouches in that oh, area. Oh, okay. And to some degree, the Germans, though the Germans, particularly in World War II, because of Hitler's insistence on running everything personally, were nowhere near as effective in espionage as one might have thought. Hitler kind of kept his espionage establishment divided. His anti-Semitism was a very serious drawback here because many of the best code breakers in other parts of the world were Jews, and he excluded them from that operation in Germany. But Germany does play a pretty important role here as well. Are the Israelis the best? The Israelis are the best in certain categories mm. and in certain periods, but each uh, country has its sort of specialties and periods when it is particularly effective, so I kind of move around according to what that particular uh, period suggests. Hmm. How good are or were the Russians? There is an area, again, where we don't know anywhere near as much as we'd like to, but some good studies are coming out now thanks to archives being opened up that it would never have been thought of being available in the past. And so far, it's a mixed story. They have had some remarkable successes in the area of international espionage in particular, but not perhaps as uh, much so as one might think given their reputation in the Cold War period. Mm. They did, of course, do a lot of internal spying against their own people, which is another category. Right. Uh, and in that area, they seem to have been, unfortunately, a little too good. But in international espionage, the, the record is somewhat mixed. Mm. Do you talk about the Rosenberg case at all? <clears throat> no, I have not talked about it, again, because I'm not it's primarily right. talking about American history. Uh, but some of the reading draws students to that subject, so I leave them to form their own views from that. Hmm. Okay. And I suppose the same would go for, like, uh, lost out the, some disputes, some historical disputes over uh, perhaps what was happening at Los Alamos, mm -hmm. if there were spies there and that sort of thing. Again, yes. that would be a little bit outside the, yes. the reach of the course. Yeah, I'd want to broaden my uh, competence a good deal to feel okay. able to talk about that in a real analytical way. Tell us some cool spy stories. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. That's, that's sort I'll of an interesting two. question. <laughs> um, there was probably the story surrounding the so-called Riley Ace of Spies that was a series on public television some years ago. This had to do with this fellow named Riley, who was, in fact, actually Russian by origin, but liked to pretend that he was the son of an Irish sea captain, just to sort of establish his credentials in non-Russian areas. And he at one time attempted a coup to overthrow Lenin and establish a government, basically, that he presumably would have dictated. And he said if uh, this little Corsican corporal can take charge of all of Europe, referring to Napoleon, then there's no reason why a British spy with the proper uh, material at his disposal can't do the same thing in this Russia, which he treated as a very backward and basically incompetent country. But Riley, Ace of Spies, is one of my favorite episodes to deal with. <clears throat> is technology taking the romance out of espionage? 
They can do things now with spy satellites, and I suppose before you had to have somebody on the ground to. Yeah, but the parts that technology is taking over in are parts that were always boring. This had to do with sort of reading lots of newspapers or mm -hmm. monitoring radio broadcasts out of one of the countries that you're spying on and so forth. So I don't think that really has changed the nature of espionage that much, except in a kind of perverse way, which is that with modern technology, especially computers, there are huge amounts of data that are piled up. And the task of separating the tiny nuggets of gold from this enormous amount of other stuff that's virtually worthless, how do you go about distinguishing the one from the other, makes the task of uh, intelligence officers today, I think, extremely difficult in a, in a very quantitative way. We have a, a couple of minutes, and this is such an interesting topic. You mentioned the ultra enigma mm -hmm. uh, going back to World War II. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. The Germans, between the two world wars, came up with a remarkable machine which permitted them to encode messages. In a, it looked like a typewriter in many respects, but what the typewriter did was establish electrical connections which then led to substituting the original letter for some mm -hmm. other letter. And um, it became very difficult to break these as the Germans got into more sophisticated versions. They added more and more wheels so it would go through several circuits to get mm -hmm. to the final letter. And a group of Poles in the 1930s first tackled this project for sort of uh, fairly personal reasons that didn't have to do with trying to defeat their neighbor Germany or anything, but they were just interested in it as a mathematical challenge. And they had come up with some pretty good solutions to it, and they made some partial breakthroughs. And then Poland got overrun by the Germans in 1939. The information was passed on to the French. The following year, 1940, France was overrun by the Germans. So the British ended up with most of the data. And in a place about 50 miles outside London called Bletchley Park, the British then developed a capacity to read the German codes. And the original codes were called Enigma, which is a very appropriate name for them. Uh, and eventually, through at least part of the time being able to break the Enigma, the British were able to, for example, have some idea where German U-boats were going. And this uh, essentially helped save Britain in the Battle of, Brit in the, Battle of the Atlantic. Mm because there was a period in World War II when the Germans were sinking more tonnage than the Allies could afford to lose and could have conceivably been starved out of the war. And then as it changed around and the British began knowing where the U-boats were, they went after them and were able to pretty well pound the U-boats into a, a position of much less effectiveness. So I would argue that that particular phase of espionage was decisive in helping to influence the outcome of World War II. How often do you offer the espionage course? Probably about every two and a half years in, in the cycle in which I try to operate. Okay. Um, so I probably would offer it again in about, uh, boy, it's getting long now, 1998, <laughs> 1999. Uh, and I usually offer it at night, so if folks are interested in it, they probably should be able to see it in that listing of courses that Parkside offers in the evening. Okay, great. I wish we had more time. There's so many more things to talk about, but the, the clock has run away from us. Oliver Hayward is Assistant Professor of History at UW-Parkside, and uh, thanks so much for uh, an engaging three-quarters of an hour. I appreciate it very much. I enjoyed it thoroughly. It's, it's always a pleasure. Oliver Hayward, Assistant Professor of History at UW-Parkside, a guest today here on WGTD, FM 91.1.